1: Microsoft updates mitigations for proxy not shell. Lloyd's of London investigates a suspected cyber attack. Killnet hits networks of U.S. state governments. The FBI and CISA weigh in on election security. Credential theft in the name of Zoom. Tim Eads from the Cyber Mentor Fund on the move to early stage investing in times of war and recession. Our guest is Nick Lumston of Tenacity Cloud on cloud infrastructure sprawl. And the former security chief at Uber was found guilty in a case involving a data breach cover up. From the Cyberwire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Thursday, October 6th, 2022. Microsoft has updated its mitigations for the two exchange server zero-day vulnerabilities, CVE-2022-41040 and 41082, that have been exploited in proxy-not-shell attacks. Dark reading describes the motivation for the updates. Researchers had determined that the mitigations in their initial form would be too easy for attackers to bypass. The major insurance marketplace, Lloyd's of London, is investigating what it believes may have been a cyber attack on its networks. Reuters quotes Lloyd's terse statement. Lloyd's has detected unusual activity on its network, and we are investigating the issue. We have informed market participants and relevant parties, and we will provide more information once our investigations have concluded. There's no attribution yet, and indeed not much information about the nature of the attack, but Reuters and the record note that Lloyd's has been a prominent supporter of sanctions against Russia during the present war. The record observes, Lloyd's representatives would not say if it was a ransomware attack or explain who may have been behind the incident. It has been one of the most notable supporters of sanctions against Russia, since the country's government decided to invade Ukraine earlier this year. So, suspicion of a Russian cyber attack is in this case a matter of a priori probability of speculation informed by track record and imputation of motive. On the other hand, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence either. But in this case, it's too soon to tell. Another story clearly does involve Russian operators— Killnet, the Russian hacktivist group, nominally independent but obviously acting on behalf of Moscow's security services, has knocked some U.S. state government services offline, CNN reports. Colorado, Kentucky, and Mississippi at least were affected, with some services sporadically rendered unavailable yesterday in DDoS attacks. Kentucky's Board of Elections was one of the sites disrupted. The story is still developing, but the effects of the attacks don't seem to have risen above a nuisance level. Killnet has hitherto been best known for conducting DDoS attacks against lightly defended targets in European countries Russia deems too friendly to Ukraine. The U.S. FBI and CISA have issued a public service announcement stating that cyber activity is unlikely to disrupt or prevent voting in the U.S. The statement reads... As of the date of this report, the FBI and CISA have no reporting to suggest cyber activity has ever prevented a registered voter from casting a ballot, compromised the integrity of any ballots cast, or affected the accuracy of voter registration information. Any attempts tracked by FBI and CISA have remained localized and were blocked or successfully mitigated with minimal or no disruption to election processes. The Bureau and CISA reassure the public that measures are in place to ensure the integrity of the vote against potential cyber attacks. Their advisory states, The public should be aware that election officials use a variety of technological, physical, and procedural controls to mitigate the likelihood of malicious cyber activity, things such as phishing, ransomware, denial of service, or domain spoofing affecting the confidentiality, integrity, or availability of election infrastructure systems or data that would alter votes or otherwise disrupt or prevent voting. Their advisory says, Given the extensive safeguards in place and distributed nature of election infrastructure, the FBI and CISA continue to assess that attempts to manipulate votes at scale would be difficult to conduct undetected. Bleeping Computer notes that the most pressing threat to elections are influence operations, especially influence operations on social media. That's a threat of a different kind, however, not a threat to counting the vote or ensuring that ballots cast are properly registered and tallied. Armor Blocks released a blog today detailing a credential phishing attack impersonating Zoom. Researchers report that the attack had a socially engineered payload that bypassed Microsoft Exchange email security and targeted over 21,000 users before Armor Blocks stopped the attack. The phishing email said that there were two unread messages to be checked on Zoom with a malicious link for the call-to-action button as well as a malicious link for the unsubscribe button. The call-to-action button, if clicked, would lead to a fake landing page that appeared to be a Microsoft landing screen victims were prompted to enter their Microsoft account credentials to view the messages. This attack leveraged a well-known brand's identity in order to harvest credentials, utilizing Zoom's legitimate logos and branding to instill a sense of trust. It's worth noting it did not involve any compromise of Zoom itself. The hackers also used social engineering, such as the email, title, and design, to induce a sense of urgency. The attack bypassed all Microsoft Exchange email security measures and used a valid domain that received a reputation score of Trustworthy with only one infection reported in the past 12 months. And finally, former Uber security chief Joe Sullivan has been found guilty of covering up a 2016 data breach as well as concealing information on a felony from law enforcement, Security Week reports. The month-long trial resulted in a verdict that could put Sullivan in prison for up to eight years, a maximum of five years for the obstruction charge, and a maximum of three for a misprision charge. The New York Times reports that it took more than 19 hours to reach a verdict in the case for the jury of six men and six women. David Angeli, an attorney for Mr. Sullivan, comments with disappointment on the verdict, stating, While we obviously disagree with the jury's verdict, we appreciate their dedication and effort in this case. Mr. Sullivan's sole focus in this incident and throughout his distinguished career has been ensuring the safety of people's personal data on the Internet. Benjamin Kingsley, an assistant U.S. attorney, said during closing arguments that Mr. Sullivan took many steps to keep the FTC and others from finding out about it. This was a deliberate withholding and concealing of information. It's thought unlikely that the sentence will be anything close to the maximum, but it's a striking sign of how seriously federal authorities are taking cases related to data breaches. the break tim eads from the cyber mentor fund on the move to early stage investing in times of war and recession our guest is nick lumstead from tenacity cloud on cloud infrastructure sprawl stay with us To learn why enterprises choose SixthSense, Sense, visit SixSense.com. Data storage is cheap, it's fair to say. And these days, as organizations move more and more of their business to the cloud, often making use of multiple cloud providers it's easy to understand the challenge of keeping tabs on all that data. Nick Lumsden is CTO and co-founder at Tenacity Cloud, and he provides insights on preventing cloud
2: sprawl. Cloud sprawl is the unintentional expansion of infrastructure over time. You know, and it especially becomes a problem as, Changes increase, which has happened just you know due to infrastructure turning into software. So you know changes that used to be quarterly or monthly uh, have now become you know twenty years later, uh, dozens or hundreds of changes a day, sometimes thousands, in really you know sizable organizations. And you know also we've opened up the number of people that can make changes. It used to be in the hands of someone who was a deployment manager or someone who administered a system, and now it's you know if you write software. Uh, like myself, you can uh, be making changes uh, all the time via the software because infrastructure is now code and it's now a part of the software. Um, And this has resulted, you know, that expansion of responsibility um, and, you know, kind of take time dilation into effect there. And you end up with resources that are deployed in infrastructure that just continue to linger long after uh, they were useful or sometimes they weren't even useful. They were a mistake. And, and, They just sit out there uh, as a tax surface on and on and on forever and ever.
1: Do we have a, a certain amount of empathy for folks who find
2: themselves in this situation? Of course, because uh, I'm one of those folks, uh, you know, 25 <laughs> years, <laughs> 25 years in managing infrastructures, writing software. Uh, if there's a mistake to be made, I've made it. Um, I've definitely created data sprawl in, in organizations where we were doing data analytics and, you know, suddenly there's terabytes and, and uh, uh, of, of data that's replicated and forgotten about. And, you know, it, it's, if you're not, even if it's secure, if you're not paying attention, that's a problem you know, make effort to go clean that up. And I totally empathize with the the pace of change. And also, frankly, that there's just not enough folks to do the work and to meet the demands of most organizations. I, I can honestly say, in IT or in technology, um, I have yet to meet the person that is paired with exactly the amount of work that needs to get done in a given day. It's usually twice as much or more, and they're trying to pick what the priority is.
1: So what's the the fundamental issue here? I mean, how should folks come about getting their arms around this?
2: Well, I I think there's a couple of things to consider. First of all is understanding that over time, this problem gets a whole lot worse. And so when you start your cloud journey, whether you're starting, you're in the middle of, or you've already transitioned and, and you're now living in the cloud, at all points in that journey, it's important to sort of get your arms around this issue, though maybe there's different approaches in, in each of those scenarios. It's not about just the human element of we need to have the engineer go clean it up. There's there's so many hands in that pot and there's so many more important things for them to do, You know, really making sure that we have tooling to help us with it, whether that's being on the path towards DevOps, which helps turning infrastructure into code and keeping it consistent. That's, that's, that, that's one way. Doesn't do the whole thing, whole trick, but it's, but it's one way. But also having platforms that help you discover what's going on inside your environments, actually looking at utilization, understanding what's been disassociated in the environment, what's no longer being utilized, what's been abandoned or orphaned uh, from its original use. Just understanding that can, that can start to learn the context of an app and really understand, you know, all, all the components, all the assets and give the user indication as to, Hey, you should go look here or even go in so far as to say, Hey, let me opt, auto optimize this for you. Let me, let me inject into your uh, dev channel, you know, what needs to be cleaned up. So uh, I think there's a number of approaches you can take. Uh, you know, certainly we at Tenacity are, are working on this problem. We, we look at the problem of, of you know optimization in the cloud as kind of a core issue. And, you know, we pull in the metadata about cloud environments, analyze them, and you know, try to get really, really, really smart uh, and smarter and smarter every day about what sorts of indicators there are that the infrastructure is is um out of use and needs to be optimized uh, in order to help the world, both from a optimize your cloud and reduce attack surface, uh, but also it helps optimize cost. It's it's a win-win-win all the way around. Are there any common elements that you see with
1: organizations that that have a handle on this that are that are doing things right?
2: So it depends on how you know. It depends on what scale the organization is at. Um, those organizations that are are at scale, the the enterprise and, and upper mid market, they likely have an initiative that's driven from executive level, and they may even have teams built around this that are focused on. The optimization puzzle focused on, you know, kind of the the security footprint from a tax surface perspective that really understand cloud, really understand, you know, kind of security ops and fin apps, fin ops and how the two come together. And so there's a concerted effort there and you're going to see them leveraging uh, AI tools, uh, you know, analytics tools, tools that are really going to help them. You know, do better in, in their business and, and tenacity is, is one of those tools it, at the, you know, mid and smaller market. When you, when you look, um, sort of at those organizations that are still trying to get to scale or maybe our startups that are, are moving quickly, it, it's about getting your arms around kind of this this problem early on and knowing what key metrics you need to watch before it gets out of control. I I, I can tell you that every organization um, we've ever deployed into has had places, has had room for optimization in some of the most egregious were, you know, spending five and six figures a month on infrastructure that was just laying around and they couldn't believe it when, when it was found or when it was detected it was no way. There's no way that's happening. And of course, it was happening and, and it was cleaned up and, and you know the environment was made safer, more secure, and, and better optimized. But there just wasn't a key metric around, say, uh, QA or dev resources. Why are you know why has their budget you know quadrupled over the past year that, that would be a key indicator that, that there's some sprawl going on? That's Nick Lumsden
1: from Tenacity Cloud. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Tim Eads. He is the co-founder of the Cyber Mentor Fund and CEO at Armor. Tim, it's always great to
0: welcome you back. Great to be here, Dave.
1: You know, these are certainly interesting times on the global stage as, as we look at uh, a war and uh, the possibility of recession. Um, how does that affect the investors out there? How do they look at this sort of thing?
0: That's a great question. You know the—it's amazing. Last year, obviously, valuations reached crazy high numbers in in security, uh, and particularly in private companies, where you know the valuations and the multiples were off the charts. I think the right place to go at that time was to go. You, you know, it's it's a bit like the opposite in politics. When valuations go crazy high, we go crazy low. Cyber Mentor Fund has invested in twenty nine companies over the last three years or so. And we believe in the crazy guy that wants to start something new, that has incredible domain permission, that's curious and kind. And we will lean into those young emerging startups because they want to break out that the legacy tools are showing their age and they wanna do something different. And so those are the people that we've been investing in over the last few years because as these valuations get completely carried away and they raise so much money, hundreds of millions, 200 million, 300 million on a round of funding, which is essentially like a private IPO, you know, my orientation is always to be lean into the, the young up and coming startup, do what you can to help mentor and provide guidance and get these new technologies to market so that we can better secure the country, better secure the, uh, the enterprises within it, and give these entrepreneurs a better chance of success. And so, yeah, it got out of control uh, with the valuations last year. And I think even this year, it's been a little bit like whiplash. At the RSA show earlier this year, everybody was doom and gloom. But, you know, in the last few weeks, you've seen crazy valuations come back with talent raising $100 million and stuff like that. It's like uh, on a Series A. So, you know, there's so much money floating around in the, in the investor community still. I think good discipline is always required. But in at times like these, you should go low. You should help these young, early-stage startups. in Seed is the better place to be, Seed and Series A.
1: What's your advice for those people who are looking to make a splash, for that person who thinks they have that great idea that's going to help make the world a better place in this environment? Are, are there any specific things they should be doing to
0: make themselves more attractive to investors like yourself? Another great question. Yeah, I think the, we invest in companies, in people early on and teams early on with domain expertise. You know, understanding your domain expertise, whether it's industrial controls or authentication or understanding how mainframes roll over and fail over and whatever it may be, the domain expertise of the founders is absolutely critical. The passion and the knowledge of that is, you know, you just can't can't build a company without that. And so that's the biggest one. Lean on that. Be articulate about that. Understand that what the problem is that you're trying to solve an industry. Make sure that doing nothing is not an option for the customer, that they can't just sit there and do nothing. Focus on a meaningful problem, focus on a, a growing problem that they have incredibly uh, good and deep domain permission for, that when you talk to a customer, they have to do something about it. And by doing that, you lean into the right VCs, such as Cyber Mentor Fund, that does this early stage mentoring, And you will always get funded in that scenario.
1: You know, we've seen some stories come out that there have been a number of companies who have been going through some rounds of layoffs. How concerning is that to you? How how do you read that?
0: I don't think that's concerning at all. I think um, you have to tighten your belt. You have to understand, you know, your burn rate, uh, you know, your cash runway... And I think, you know, managing to that is a really smart and shrewd thing to do. I think frugal companies always go further. So I'm not, it doesn't concern me at all. I think it's healthy, to be really honest. Um, Because we don't know how long, you know, the war in Ukraine's gonna happen, what's gonna happen with China and Taiwan. We don't know know, how long it will take to get control of inflation. So yeah, tighten your belt, be frugal, lean in, look after your customers, and you'll be fine. All right. Well, Tim Eads, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dave.
1: Our lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program with the largest network of trust centers... That's vanta.com/slash cyber. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at TheCyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Puru Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Catherine Murphy, Chris Russell. John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.